new to Harvest. My name is uh, Wayman Bishop. I am not a pastor. I am not a preacher. That's my disclaimer. I I want to issue that up front. Um, So um, the reason that's important for you to know is that there's a distinct difference between a teacher and a preacher, and and I consider myself to be a teacher. The extent to which I have responded to that call uh, will be determined sometime later in my life. But nonetheless, that's where I think I have been called, to be a teacher. So, so when you're a teacher, you have a license to offend the mind. In an attempt to get to the heart. I mean, the most perfect example of that is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Often in his ministry, he offended the mind to get to the heart. Rifle, who proclaims himself to be first a teacher, does that all the time. And I I don't say that out of offense, but he says things that are not natural to our way of thinking because many of us have not fully renewed our minds. And so what we hear from teachers often offends our mind on the path to the heart. When Rifle says something that I don't understand, and uh, and offense perhaps is too strong a word, when what he speaks to me settles on my spirit, there is, in time, revelation that moves my heart. So that's the difference between a preacher and a teacher. So I, I would just pray. There's a difference between uh, offending the mind and doing harm. So I would pray that you would pray for me that I do no harm this morning. And for those of you who are new to Harvest, should I... Go beyond offense into harm. Uh, fear not, our pastor will be back Sunday. <laughs> but for the moment, he has entrusted me to continue in the word in Matthew. Matthew chapter 16, I believe it is. Verse 15. So if you have your Bibles, uh, turn with me to those verses in Scripture because I believe that they require some repeating. So Jesus and his disciples are in Caesarea Philippi. And for me, it is easy to put my head around this conversation if I envision them sitting around a campfire after a busy day of ministry. So Jesus is having this conversation with his disciples. Chapter 16, and I'm going to start reading in verse 13. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I am? The Son of Man. So they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, 
others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, and here's the key, but who do you say that I am? So the word this morning um, for me is a message of identity. And there are several questions to be asked when we take up this issue of our personal identity and the identity of Jesus Christ. But I, I, I want to seize this moment to, um, to inject what I believe is the need for some clarity uh, in this dilemma that we, some of us in the Christian faith, face in our culture today. Last week, at the National Cathedral, the rector there hosted what he called an ecumenical service in which Muslims, practices of the faith of Islam, came together with Christians to pray to their one God. Now, when I heard about this, I had this image of Nicole. And this is... And this, is, and this is an image that, that Greg is very familiar with. She scrunches up her face and she stamps her foot and she says, That's a lie from the pit of hell. <laughs> How many of you have heard her say that? Yeah, amen. So I, I, I'm here to tell you that if a caliphate or a rector or a pastor stands before you and tells you that those who practice the faith of Islam and those who practice the faith of Christianity pray to the same God. That is a lie from the pit of hell. And so there, there, is a very, there are some very solid tests to, so that you will be certain in that you know who God is and who Muslims pray to in the name of Allah. And so let me, just, let me just run through a few of these in the hopes that if this helps you uh, in your relationship with some of your Muslim friends or um, some of your Christian friends who have mistakenly practiced uh, this theology of inclusiveness, consider these things. Muhammad is not the Son of God. Muhammad was not sent in the world to save us from ourselves. The Koran is not the inspired Word of God. The message of jihad that is taught in the Koran is dramatically and drastically different than the message of mercy and grace in the New Testament. There's a significant difference in that. Consider this also. Allah, the God that those who practice the faith of Islam, is not the God of Israel. He is not the God of Israel. And the children of Israel are not the children of Allah. So be certain about that. Because if you are not, 
I think there will be a struggle in your spirit to reconcile the identity of Jesus Christ if you don't know the distinct difference between Yahweh and Allah. So, not a sermon, just a thought. So let's pray. Father, we are so blessed to be together here in your house. We know, God, that you have brought us here not just because it's Sunday, not just because it's another day for us to gather or get together and fellowship in your name, but we know that we are here for a purpose, Father. And I would just pray that you would open our eyes, the eyes of our hearts, to see and receive that which you are already doing in our midst. And I would just pray, God, that your spirit would be powerful in this place, on us, around us, and in us, so that the truth would be revealed to us in a powerful way. And I just pray these things in Jesus' sweet and holy name. Amen. So, going back to these verses in Matthew, where we have been for several weeks and will be for several more weeks, uh, let us be clear that in this conversation that Jesus was having with his disciples, Jesus was not experiencing an identity crisis. Let's be certain of that. He was not looking for edification. He was not looking to be lifted up. He was not looking for his disciples to put their arms around him, pat him on the back and say, It's okay, Jesus. We know you are the Son of God. And men will come to know that soon. It's all right. Go on and do your thing. That was not the purpose of this conversation. And the question that he asked, Who is it that you say that I am? Jesus Christ put down a marker that has a powerful impact on our lives today. Today, the question still resonates, even among some believers. Who is this man, this Jesus from Nazareth? Prophet, rabbi, the Son of God, Lord and Savior. There's, a, there's another question that I believe that springs forth from this question that Jesus put before his disciples. And, that, and this question is a much more personal one. And it is the question that man has been asking himself for thousands of years. Who am I? Why am I here? And what happens when I die? To separate that question from the question that Jesus asked, who do you say that I am, is a very difficult task. I think if you pray about it and meditate it, meditate on that, you will come to a conclusion very rapidly that our identity, the answer to the question, who am I, is inextricably intertwined with the question, who is Jesus Christ of Nazareth? You cannot separate the two. So, this who, who did this? This is really good. Thank you. That was good. Thank you. <laughs> so, there is um, 
in Scripture in the Old Testament. One such man who cried out to the Lord, Who am I? So Moses is in the desert, and he's um, watching over his father-in-law's sheep. And the Lord comes to him and comes to him and says, I'm sending you before the Pharaoh to lead my people out of bondage in Egypt. I have heard the cry of my children, and I am sending you. And so Moses says, who am I? Who am I? The Pharaoh is a powerful man with an army of legions. The Israelites don't know me, and if they knew me, they may not see me as the man to lead them out of Egypt. And if I stand before them and I speak to them, will they listen to me? Who am I? Moses did not know who he was in the presence of the living God. So ask yourself the question, do you know, do we know who we are? Do we fully understand who we are, what we have been created to be and to do in the kingdom on earth. Now, I'm not suggesting that uh, any of us will ever be called uh, to stand before the grand poobah and lead Israel from the threat of ISIS or Hezbollah, or Iran. But I do know, this is fundamental to my faith, those of us who believe, we will be called to stand before someone who is as much in bondage as were the children of Israel. And and in that opportunity, we are called to be the voice of freedom, to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, so that the chains of sin will be broken from them for all of eternity. We would be hard-pressed to distinguish between the significance of those two events, the event in the life of Moses, who am I, God, and the event in our personal lives when we find ourselves in the presence of someone who is broken and does not know the Lord. In the the eyes of the Lord, there is no distinguishing feature between them. So, I I believe that when Jesus asked the question of his disciples, who is it that you say that I am? He is also asking us a question. Who is it? That you say you are. Or perhaps uh, more important, who is it that men say that you are? Who do they see when they are in your presence? If we are fully dead to ourselves and alive in Christ, the answer to that question should be clear. But I do believe that Jesus was asking that question, who is it that you say you are in me?
In 1 Peter chapter 3, the apostle asks the question, or actually it's not a question, he makes a statement. He is, um, he is empowering us to always be prepared to answer the question asked by everyone, what is the reason for the hope that you have in you? Again, this is in First Peter chapter 3. Peter asks ask us to consider this. Always be prepared to answer the question asked by everyone, what is the reason for the hope that you have in you? The short answer to that is Christ in me, the hope of glory. But I, I would ask you also uh, to consider this. How many of you uh, are familiar with the theology of apologetics? How many of you have ever really been caught up in apologetics? I have. And I'm here to tell you that is a very dangerous place to be. Uh, I believe that there is a place and a time for apologetics. But I also believe that, the, that apologetics is a theology of argument. It is not, in contrast, the dynamic theology of signs and wonders. So, you know, in, um, in the summer of 2008, I felt like I was really being called to be a student of apologetics. So I went to Oxford University in England and studied for a short time under Ravi Zacharias, who is uh, a very powerful apologetic, an incredibly brilliant man who has a powerful love for the Lord. And it is the, it is the true desire of his heart to see all of mankind saved. But what Ravi Zacharias can pull off in apologetics, I cannot. Because I get angry. <laughs> and I tend to argue with people who, at, I don't do that anymore. But at the time, I would argue with people and get angry with them if they could not see the logic of my debate about, about who Jesus Christ really is. Now, compare and contrast that with the theology of signs and wonders. Um, you know, Paul said an amazing thing. He said, As I travel roundabout from Rome to Illyricum, the amazing power of signs and wonders allows me to more fully Proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm going to say that again for emphasis. Paul said, and I'm going to sort of move the phrases around to make the point as I would make it. Paul says, it is easier for me, therefore easier for us, to more fully proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ through signs and wonders than to argue with people. Jesus said, these are the signs of those who believe. 
They will lay hands on the sick and they will be healed. So if I'm in a debate with an atheist who reaches up and holds his shoulder and moves it around, and I'm debating this guy, and I'm getting angry with him because he won't buy my argument about the identity of Jesus Christ. If I were to say, is there something wrong with your shoulder? And this person says, yeah, I've been suffering from arthritis in the shoulder since um, I was 15. And I place my hand on his shoulder and I pray in the name of Jesus Christ that the reality of his healing become part of his identity. He's already been healed. The blood of Christ has already been shed on the cross. His healing is his. I'm just claiming it for him in the name of Jesus Christ. And the next thing you know, he decides, as most atheists atheists will, to end the conversation because he cannot explain what has just happened to him. That this sudden miraculous healing in his shoulder is unexplainable in his personal theology, which for the most part is non-existent. So Jesus says, these are the signs of those who believe. How many of us would like to see ourselves as a believer who is constantly being followed by signs and wonders? Yeah. There are people in this church that carry signs and wonders with them everywhere they go. I've seen it. Um, I, I wish that more of them would give their testimony. Um, why they hesitate to do that, I'm, I'm not sure. Perhaps it's foolish pride. Uh, perhaps it's their hesitance to announce their true identity. I am a follower of Christ. Therefore, signs and wonders follow me. How much... How much different would our walk in our faith be if we knew that everywhere we went, we would be accompanied by signs and wonders? How much more powerful would our walk be? Jesus didn't say, this is for a few of those who believe. He didn't say... This is for pastors and prophets and apostles. He said, this is the sign that will follow all of those who believe. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will be healed. That's all of us. That is such an incredibly powerful part of our identity. So going back to this conversation, when Jesus says, who is it that you say that I am? He's saying to me and to you, who is it that you say that you are? And I say, we are believers. Signs and wonders, therefore, follow us. 
Now, I want to tell you that, that this anointing is for all believers. And it is alive and well in this church. If you are a visitor for the first time in this church, and you're looking for a place to worship where the power of the Holy Spirit is 24 hours a day, seven days a week, where there is an anointing of God's love, His grace, and His mercy on all of those who share together in fellowship in Jesus' name in this church, you have found the right place. Now, today is Sunday. Tomorrow is Monday. Are we having healing rooms tomorrow? Okay, so I thought maybe since it was Thanksgiving we weren't. Praise the Lord. So, every Monday afternoon, Bob and Betsy and a dozen or so believers from our church and from other churches gather here in this very place and open the doors of this church to those who are looking for peace. Many come here with the excuse of a, of a sore um, joint, thumb, whatever, uh, or, or any, any number of, of physical ailments. Many come with that excuse. Not that it's invalid, but the cry of their heart is, I need peace. That's the cry of all of our hearts. And so there is this powerful anointing on this place in which that peace is for the asking. And, and I, believe, I believe that our prayer ministry and our healing ministry is as much for those who lay hands on the sick as it is the sick who receive those hands. Because they're powerful testimonies, both in the giver and in the receiver. And, and those testimonies need to be written, they need to be published, they need to be spoken in public. They need to be part and parcel of our cry to those who do not know the love of Jesus Christ, which is alive and well in this church, particularly on Monday afternoon. So, I mean, there is, there is in that um, this powerful message of who we say we are as a church in the body of Christ. We are a church who believes in the power of the Holy Spirit. We are a church that does not put God in a box and says the things that some would say about the Holy Spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit are not for the church today. This is not one of those church churches. I, I, I believe that preachers who preach cessationism, in other words, the ceasing of the gifts of the Spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit, are practicing a theology of fear. I believe that with all my heart. I was in a church like that for almost 20 years. And so, um, fast forward a little bit. So I, I go to Oxford, England in the summer of 2008, and I take this short course in apologetics. The, 
the following Christmas, Barbara and I are in Paris with our family celebrating Christmas. And one day, Barbara and I wandered away from our kids, much to their glee. <laughs> and we found ourselves in uh, the, the Jewish ghetto in Paris. I mean, you, I mean, it's an amazing adventure. You step off the curb of the street into the Jewish ghetto, and it is like the entire atmosphere has changed. The air is so heavy with oppression. I mean, it is like the weight of the Holocaust is still being carried on the shoulders of every Jew who lives in the Jewish ghetto in Paris. And there are ghettos like that all over the world. So as we were wandering around, uh, we saw this bookstore. We wandered into this bookstore, and I walked deeper into the room, and on the shelf on the right side, on the bookcase on the right side, there were four shelves. And on each of the shelves, there were four identical volumes, 26 in number, one was written in Hebrew, one was written in German, one was written in French, and one was written in English. And the title of all of them was 26 Reasons Why Jesus Christ is Not the Messiah. Well, this, uh, this angry, apologetic emotion, you know, just... Uh, brewed up in me and I wanted to I wanted to find the owner of the bookstore and confront him with my argument about who Jesus Christ is what I should have been doing but what I didn't know at the time was that signs and wonders followed me um, there's so much healing to be done in a Jewish ghetto and it was such a I look back in retrospect, and I, I recognize now that it was a great opportunity to demonstrate clearly the power of the Holy Spirit, yet I was angry. Twenty-six reasons why Jesus is not the Messiah. So I got down on my knees to pull out one of the volumes from the bottom shelf written in English, and I opened, I just indiscriminately grabbed one, and I opened it up. And just, I mean, each volume was written for each reason. I'm sorry, each book within the volume was written for a specific reason. The one I pulled out of the shelf said that the, the basic argument was if Jesus was the Messiah, Christians would not have to make an excuse for his failings in his first visit on earth hoping that he would come again. Yeah, that's what I said. What? <laughs> what? The book fundamentally said, if Jesus had been who he said he was, he would not have to come back to finish his work. He would have done it while he was there. I mean, that's a great argument in the making. I mean, you could argue that all day long. So, you know, this, you know, we, sh we should be in prayer for our Jewish brothers and sisters. 
that, that they be healed of this um, ministry of unbelief in the true identity of who Jesus Christ is in the world. So, that was Christmas of 2008. Now, I'm still a dyed-in-the-wool apologetic. And I, I believe that, that the truth can be preached by arguing with someone. So, I'm, I'm teaching, as I had been for many years, an adult Bible study in this sleepy little Baptist church that I went to. And someone encouraged me uh, to, to teach out of this book that was written by Bill Johnson entitled, When Heaven Invades Earth. Have any of you ever read it? <laughs> if you have not read this book, you should buy it and read it. It probably will not change the way you think, but I guarantee you it will change the way you think. if you read it and meditate on it. So I went to my pastor and I said, can I teach from this book? And he said, sure, just be careful. Now, I had no idea what he was talking about. None. So, so because, so because um, I was studying this book, Rich Tinky, who many of you know, said, hey, Bill Johnson is going to be up in Pennsylvania at this conference. Why don't we go to that? I said, yeah, that's a great idea. So Barbara and, and I, Barbara's my wife, Barbara and I and the Tinkies get in the car. We drive to Pennsylvania to go to Voice of the Apostles. And the first night we're there, now, you know, I have no clue. I am so clueless. Remember, I am an apologetic. I am clueless about the charismatic movement. Except to know that when I was a young boy, my mother said, stay away from that church. <laughs> so the very first night we're there, guess who the guest speaker is? Heidi Baker. <laughs> so Barbara and I sitting on about the third row back, right about here. Heidi Baker comes out, falls to her knees, and starts her thing. Her thing. And so I looked over at Barbara and I said, we're not supposed to be here. This is not a place for good Baptists. We should leave immediately. And I looked over at Rich Tinky, and his eyes are about like this. So, at the break, Rich and I confer, and we say, well, you know, we've, we've made a significant investment of time and money. Let's just stick this out for at least 36 hours. So, I mean, it didn't get any better. <laughs> As a matter of fact, it got worse. And I was more convinced in my spirit that I had no idea or that I should not be there. I should not have my wife there. So now it's Friday night. We've stuck it out through all this craziness. And, and there's a healing service. And we're sitting in the back of the room. Now, I hope I can get through this without breaking down. I'll do my best. 
Who said that? <laughs> okay, I'm going to get real. So we're sitting way back in the back. Yeah, <laughs> like, a good like, a, like a good Baptist at a charismatic meeting, yeah. So we're sitting way back in the back, and Randy Clark uh, had just asked their school of ministry to come forward to pray for those who need healing. And I said to Barbara, I said, man, I can't wait to see this. Because we did not believe in that where I went to church. It was just not something. And I was a deacon there for 15 years, and I, we just did not believe in that. <clears throat> so there was just this stream of people that went down for prayer. Hundreds, if not a thousand people went forward for prayer. <clears throat> My wife elbows me. She said, I'm going down there. So, you know, there, I mean, there were so many emotions in me. You know, I, I was so afraid that she was going to be bitterly disappointed. I, and I wanted to protect her from that. But <clears throat> there was this check in my spirit. Let her go. <clears throat> and so she did. Now, my wife had suffered from scoliosis uh, all of her life. And in her late 40s and early 50s and into her later 50s, uh, it took her 30 minutes to get out of bed every morning. She had to go through the stretching routine every day just to be able to put her feet on the floor and walk without pain. So she's going down and she said, I'm asking for prayer for my scoliosis. And I said, okay, I'm coming with you. So... We're in this line uh, that is moving very slowly. And the line right next to it is moving very fast. And Barbara said, why don't we move into this line that's going very fast? And the Holy Spirit said to me, like he has never spoken to me before, do not move. So we waited our turn. We got down front. And there's this pastor from a little charismatic church uh, in Wales, was at the end of the line. Uh, Barbara walked up to him and he said, how can I pray for you? And she said, I have had scoliosis all my life and I am in pain all the time. And he looked at me and he said, put your hand on your wife's back where her pain is and I will pray. So he put his hand on top of my hand, and he started praying. I felt my wife's spine readjust. And she, and she cried out. I mean, not just a little whimper. She cried out. And I was, I was afraid that she was in pain. I could feel what was going on in her body. And so I said to her, are you okay? And she said, no, I'm in pain. I'm in pain. Her sacroiliac joint was going like this. Her spine was going like this. <clears throat> and suddenly she fell to the ground. And she said, she looked up at me and she said, 
I am pain free. My whole world, boom, upside down. I share this testimony with you for a number of reasons. Obviously, for its value in faith, but also because um, I became a different man. My identity overnight changed. I I was not the angry apologetic. I was the wide-eyed, confused, (laughs) exhilarated, joyously happy powerfully awestruck by the love of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit because my wife's life has been dramatically changed. And those of you who know her today know that she walks reasonably straight. I mean, there, there are still some consequences of years and years of scoliosis. But she walks reasonably straight, but she is pain-free. She gets out of bed in the morning like she's 18 years old. So when Jesus says, these are the signs of those who believe, I believe there's a message that goes beyond the power of signs and wonders. I believe that the message that Jesus is preaching there is that our identity should be grounded firmly in the absolute peace and joy and understanding that for those of us who believe, everywhere we go, signs and wonders will follow us. I believe that with all my heart. And, and I would just pray for all of you that you step out in that. That that becomes so much a part of your character that it is a part of your visible identity. And there are people in this church who walk in that everywhere they go. And I just give thanks that I am in their presence. And I pray that I will have a powerful revelation of that same identity. I'm getting there, slowly but surely. But their testimony is such a powerful witness to me. Um, and and I, I don't want to embarrass them, embarrass them or encumber their lives any more than the burden of this is a great joy to them right now. But if you want a place to start, come here tomorrow and submit yourself to the leadership of Bob and Betsy in our healing ministry, either for prayer or to pray. It is a great spiritual experiment. Believe me, you will not be disappointed. You will not be disappointed. So if you need prayer or you want to pray for someone to look behind you and see that signs and wonders are following you, come to this healing room tomorrow. What time? Does it start? Five o'clock? Five o'clock? So, you know, um, I read with some... Um, chagrin what I had written in the bulletin about what today's sermon would be. Well, clearly I did not go there. Um, If you're looking for someone to blame, um, start with the Holy Spirit. (laughs) Let me just um, 
Let me just pray this benediction over you. This is from Romans 15. And it is so powerful. And one of the things I was going to teach today about was the powerful conversion experience that Paul had on the Damascus Road and on Straight Street in Damascus. Because there is in that for all of us a powerful lesson of the power of the Holy Spirit. I I would recommend that you go back into the book of Acts and read those chapters about Saul's conversion experience. Pray and meditate. Soak on those words. And come to your own conclusions about how that lesson, how that experience in Paul's life applies to you. But I didn't do that. So Romans 15, close your eyes and let me pray this very short benediction over you. Now may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another according to Christ Jesus that you may with one mind and with one mouth glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I would invite those of our prayer ministry to come forward. If any of you have anything in your life No matter how significant or how trivial you may think it is, I would invite you to come forward and receive prayer. Because as Jesus said, these are the signs of those who believe. They will lay hands on the sick and they will be healed. God bless you. You're dismissed. Thank you.